Chapter 2. Let's define our terms. How do you define Reconstructionism? This question was asked of Dave Hunt by Peter Waldron, host of the syndicated radio program Contact America, on August 12, 1987. Dave Hunt's response may astound some of our readers. I haven't defined that term. We barely touch on it in the last two chapters of those last two books. In fact, I had to really work hard to get the publisher to allow it in, because the publisher said, We don't think this is really part of the topic. We think it ought to be left out. In response to his publisher's reaction, Hunt said, Wait a minute. This is very important. Yes, it is important, but it deserves separate treatment in a full-length book. Consider what Mr. Hunt has said. He comments on a significant theological movement that has worldwide appeal and respect, but it has only been since August 12, 1987, that he has actually defined what he and others have already criticized. This is where most of the confusion lies with those who have never heard of Christian Reconstruction until they read Dave Hunt's books, listen to him on a three-tape interview with Peter Lalonde, or watched him on Reverend Jimmy Swaggart's television program, A Sunday in the Word. Those who link Christian Reconstruction with the New Age movement, manifest sons of God, and aberrant theological views that are coming from the fringes of charismatic teaching do not have a definitional handle on what Reconstructionists believe. Because Reconstructionists are sometimes listed with these other groups solely because of their victory-oriented gospel message, it's assumed that agreement can be found on many points. This simply is not true. There is no organizational or common theological tie. Even Dave Hunt belatedly agrees that Christian Reconstructionists should not be linked with these groups. Peter Waldron, in his interview with Dave Hunt, wants to drive home this important point for his listeners. Hunt criticized the view of certain leaders in segments of the charismatic movement, but Waldron interrupted. Peter Waldron, let's be careful. I'm familiar with Dr. Rush Dooney. He's not teaching this. Dave Hunt, right. Peter Waldron, Gary North is not teaching that. Dave Hunt, right. Peter Waldron, Neither is Gary DeMar or any of the other people who are often identified as the philosophical foundation of Reconstruction movement. Dave Hunt, right, right. Before evaluation takes place, terms must be defined. Many critics take the straw man approach to debate, that is, forming an argument against a view that the opponent does not actually hold, which perhaps no one actually holds. Albert James Dagger, for example, builds his straw man from a remarkable misreading of Christian Reconstructionist literature. He maintains that Reconstructionists want to establish the kingdom of God through politics and other societal strategies. He does not quote one book or article to prove his assertion. In fact, if Mr. Dagger would read any of the approximately 100 books and scholarly journals, plus the two decades of newsletters written by Christian Reconstructionists, he would quickly learn that Reconstructionists believe just the opposite. One of the distinctives of Christian Reconstruction is its aversion to the use of politics as the method to bring about social change. In Reconstructionist social theory, politics plays a minor role. We've made this clear with our writings on government, but why all the attention to politics in Reconstructionist literature? And, we might add, in the literature of many evangelical and charismatic groups? The answer is very simple. Politics has become the savior of the people. Reconstructionists write about politics and civil government in order to call Christians and non-Christians 
back to their only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the state is not the order of man's salvation. We will quote Gary North, a prominent Christian Reconstructionist, to make our point. Because the humanists have made the state into their agency of earthly salvation, from the ancient Near Eastern empires, to the Greeks, to Rome's empire, and to the present, Christians need to focus on this battlefield. But we must always remember that political battles are important today primarily because our theological opponents have chosen to make their first and last stand on the political battlefield. Had they chosen to fight elsewhere, it would not appear as though we are hypnotized with the importance of politics. Christian Reconstructionists are not hypnotized by politics. Humanists and pietists are hypnotized by politics. Nevertheless, we are willing to fight the enemy theologically on his chosen ground, for we are confident that God rules every area of life. He can and will defeat them in the mountains or on the plains. 1 Kings 20, 28 in politics and in education, in family and in business. This emphasis runs through all Dr. North's writings, but Mr. Dagger creates a caricature of Christian reconstruction and dominion theology when he writes that the central doctrine of all, however, is that Jesus cannot or will not return to the earth until the church has taken control of at least a significant portion of human government and social institutions. He leaves the impression that Christian Reconstructionists equate the kingdom with political advances. This is patently false. He goes on to write that the goal of Dominion Theology Advocates is the subjugation of individual secular states to the authority of the church. Where is this doctrine found in the many writings of Christian Reconstructionists? Christian Reconstructionists are looking for the transformation of all of society, including families, churches, business establishments, the legal profession, education, economics, journalism, the media, and civil government through personal redemption and adherence to the Bible as a standard for godly rule. This is a far cry from calling for the subjugation of individual secular states to the authority of the church. Clearing up the confusion. Mr. Hunt's books take issue with some of the teachings of several loosely organized movements. These are known by various names, Dominion Theology, Kingdom Theology, and Christian Reconstruction. The best way to handle these topics is to begin with definitions. A lot of confusion can be cleared up by the simple exercise of defining terms. As with all attempts to describe something, however, there is the danger of leaving out some aspect of the position that some people might hold or adding a distinctive that others do not. We have tried to stay with the foundational elements of these beliefs as we understand the concepts. Of course, we are speaking for ourselves, and so the definitional limitations lie with us. Dominion Theology Dominion Theology is best understood by first looking at the dominion that God, through Jesus Christ, exercises in the world. Jesus has dominion because he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19.16. A synonym for dominion is lordship. The Bible states in numerous places that dominion belongs to Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his holy glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Jude 24-25 through 25. Those who hold to a dominion theology believe the Bible when it states that the dominion of Jesus is before all time, and now, and forever. 
God exercises his dominion now. His lordship is over all things in time and in eternity. Because Jesus has dominion, his people, who are united to him by faith, also have dominion. The Bible says we are adopted children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8:17. As Christians created in the image of God and restored in Jesus Christ, we inherit what was given to Jesus. We therefore share in his dominion. But the exercise of this dominion is ethical. It does not come automatically, nor is it imposed top-down by a political regime or by an army of Christians working frenetically to overthrow governments of the world. Such a concept of dominion is rather the essence of secular humanism, the religion of revolution. God's people exercise dominion in the same way that Jesus exercised dominion, through sacrificial obedience and faithfulness to the commandments. Dominion comes through service. The Gentiles, those outside of Christ in Jesus' day, lorded over the people, looking to the power of the state to grant favors and protection to loyal subjects, Luke 22:25. It's something of a master-slave relationship. As a result, these lords are described as benefactors. They, through force, work to benefit some of the people for their own political ends. This is not the way the dominion-oriented Christians rule with Christ. Again, service is the prescription for dominion. But not so with you, but let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Verse 26-27 It is idolatrous to seek dominion primarily by political means, whether by domination or anarchic revolution. When Christians serve the world, they will be seen as benefactors, wanting nothing in return but to bring glory to God. Dominion will then be established progressively over time, not through oppression, but through faithful service. Notice the goal in Jesus' statement. He does not say that Christians should not have authority, that they should not be the leaders. To the contrary, he asserts that Christians ought to do things differently in order to reach results that are much better than anything the Gentiles can offer. The task for the Christian is to be light in a world of darkness. How does he do this? Again, he serves. For what purpose? To extend the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ into every area of life, a dominion that is his by divine right, a dominion that he shares with his subordinates. The dominion of Christians is a benefit to the world only because Christ works in and through them. The benefits do not come ultimately from Christians, those who do the nitty-gritty work of service in the world, but from Christ. How then are non-Christians pointed to Jesus as their true benefactor? Through our works of service. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5:14-16. David Chilton comments on the service aspect of dominion and its relationship to work. The biblical method of attaining dominion is through diligent labor. When Adam rebelled, he chose instead to have dominion by playing God, rejecting God's leadership over him. He wanted power over the creation, not legitimately through God-ordained work, but by becoming his own God. The world doesn't work that way, of course, and man was driven into slavery, losing dominion. 
but sinful men still seek power outside of the pattern God has commanded. An important principle is at work in history. It is this. God is continually at work to destroy unbelieving cultures and to give the world over to the dominion of his people. That, by the way, is what is meant by those verses about God uprooting the rich. See Leviticus 20:22, Deuteronomy 28, Proverbs 2, 21 through 22, 10, 30. God works to overthrow the ungodly, and increasingly the world will come under the dominion of Christians, not by military aggression, but by godly labor, saving, investment, and orientation toward the future. For a time, ungodly men may have possessions, but they are disobedient and become disposed. Job 27, 16 through 17, Proverbs 13, 22, Ecclesiastes 2, 26. The effects of the gospel go beyond the individual and his personal relationship with Jesus. Those who hold to a dominion theology believe that there are cultural and societal effects to the gospel. The world is affected by the lordship of Jesus as Christians take personal dominion and seek to live in all facets of life in obedience to Christ and in the power of the gospel. The transformation that takes place in the individual believer has an effect on family, church, education, entertainment, business, law, journalism, the media, art, music, civil government, communication, publishing, economics, and every and any good gift created by God. Compare Genesis 1.31. All Christians agree that Jesus' finished work on the cross has freed us from the dominion of sin in our lives. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.14 KJV Sin is no longer our master, our Lord. We have a new master who has broken the bonds of sin and death, who has freed us from the curse of the law. The language in Romans 6 is very important. The New American Standard Version uses the word master instead of dominion. Sin shall not be master over you, Romans 6.14. We are no longer slaves of sin, verse 17. We have been freed from sin, verse 18, and have been made slaves to righteousness, verse 19. Paul says it differently in Colossians, but with the same intent. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, 1.13-14. Sin no longer has dominion over the Christian. Sin is no longer master. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are now in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The devil does not reign. The world is not his turf. Jesus has plundered the enemy and freed the captives. Luke 11:14 through 28. He is the king, and we are his subjects. Now this is the important part. Personal dominion extends throughout the kingdom and includes every aspect of life. Personal dominion becomes kingdom-wide. All of life should be transformed by the liberating effects of the gospel. Grace dethrones sin. It destroys sin's lordship and enables the believer to offer himself and whatever pertains to him in loving service to God. If we believe that the work of Jesus dethroned the curse of sin so that it no longer has dominion over the believer, then why is it so hard to believe that millions of Christians should not work to have dominion over sin in every area of life? This is the essence of dominion theology. As we will show elsewhere, dominion theology is neither perfectionist nor utopian. Sin is still with us, but with Jesus' help and the power of his Holy Spirit, it does not have to master us or this world. R.J. Rushdooney has an extended discussion of dominion in The Institutes of Biblical Law. 
Dominion begins with the new man in Christ. There is no dominion without Christ. Clearly, there is no hope for man except in regeneration. The salvation of man includes his restoration into the image of God and the calling implicit in that image to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion. Hence, the proclamation of the gospel was also the proclamation of the kingdom of God according to all the New Testament. The church of today has reduced Christianity to regeneration, being born again, alone. For many Christians, there is nothing more. If you ask the question, regeneration for what? When the question is asked, the answer that usually comes back is, regeneration for heaven and only heaven. Reconstructionists believe that dominion begins with regeneration and should encompass all of life. Christians should keep in mind that dominion cannot be denied. Rush Dooney again writes, Dominion does not disappear when a man renounces it. It is simply transferred to another person, perhaps to his wife, children, employer, or the state. Where the individual surrenders his due dominion, where the family abdicates it, and the worker and employer reduce it, there another party, usually the state, concentrates dominion. Where organized society surrenders power, the mob gains it, proportionate to the surrender. This fact poses the problem which for an Orwell, who saw the issue clearly, is impossible to answer. Fallen man's exercise of dominion is demonic. It is power for the sake of power, and its goal is a boot stamping on a human face forever. Its alternative is the dominion of anarchy, the bloody and tumultuous reign of the momentarily strong. Dominion is a fact. For Christians, it is a lost legacy that must be regained as we move into the 21st century. If the clocks of the prophetic speculators are running fast, then it is imperative that we begin now to recapture the biblical doctrine of dominion under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Dominion cannot be avoided. Kingdom Theology Kingdom theology grows out of the dominion concept. In fact, the terms are often used interchangeably. The phrase kingdom theology is widely used in certain charismatic circles. It has not been used by those who advocated dominion theology, although there are many points of agreement. Basically, kingdom theology deals with the timing and nature of the kingdom. Is the kingdom only future? Or is the kingdom both now and future? Does the kingdom only have reference to heaven? Or does the kingdom manifest itself on earth? Is the kingdom solely internal? Or does the kingdom manifest itself externally as well? These questions may sound technical. To clarify them, let us ask them in a personal way. Is your personal salvation only future, or is it both now and future? Does your personal salvation only have reference to heaven, or does it manifest itself on earth? Is your personal salvation solely internal, or does it manifest itself externally? All of a sudden, the light dawns. These are false choices, aren't they? Well, it's an equally false choice regarding the kingdom of God. Mr. Hunt has created an unnecessary choice between the kingdom of God in heaven and the kingdom of God on earth, between the kingdom of God in people's hearts and the kingdom of God in people's behavior. The first chapter of Colossians describes God's reign as including things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Colossians 1.16. Jesus has reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, verse 20. This is not something that will happen, it has happened. The reduction of Christianity seeks to explain the issues raised by proponents and opponents of dominion and kingdom theology. Much of the discussion in this book will center on the timing and nature of the kingdom. 
it is enough to say at this point that the kingdom is both present and future, internal and external, visible and invisible. Christian Reconstruction Christian Reconstruction is not a movement in a strict sense. There is no central director, no overall tightly controlled strategy. What unites Reconstructionists is their commitment to certain distinctive doctrines. There are several think tanks that promote Reconstructionist distinctives, including Geneva Ministries, the Chalcedon Foundation, and the Institute for Christian Economics. Several of these institutions have publishing wings. The Reconstructionist movement embraces numerous scholars and writers, as well as many pastors and teachers who are also sympathetic to the main thrust of Christian Reconstruction. Many of the teachings of Christian Reconstructionists are developments of particular Reformed doctrines that find their best expression in the confessional standards of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In particular, Reconstructionists believe in the sovereignty of God as it relates to personal salvation and all aspects of the created order, hold to the old Puritan belief in the continuing significance of the Old Testament case laws, and a victorious view of the future progress of the kingdom of God, and advocate the presuppositional apologetic methodology and philosophy of the late Cornelius Van Til, who was not a Reconstructionist. Moreover, Reconstructionists have a broad understanding of the Church's mission in the world. They believe that the Gospel Commission involves not only saving individuals, which is fundamental and primary, but also the discipling of the nations, bringing the nations under the authority of Christ through sacrificial service and the application of Scripture, Matthew 28, 18-20. Reconstructionists have drawn from a rich history of thought in the development of their ideas. Some of these distinctive elements can be found in the literature of the early church fathers, although in a less systematic form. The Reconstructionist emphasis on a biblically-based view of life goes back at least to the Puritans. Leland Riken notes that the Puritans held firmly to the inerrancy of Scripture and trusted its authority in every area of life. According to William Perkins, the Bible comprehendeth many holy sciences, and when he began to list them, they included ethics, economics, a doctrine governing a family, politics, a doctrine of the right administration of common weal, academy, the doctrine of governing schools. Well, according to another source, the Bible is so broad in its application that all subjects in schools and universities can be related to it. For the Puritans, all work was holy because it was done in obedience to the Lord and for his glory. The American Puritan preacher John Cotton said, A true believing Christian lives in his vocation by his faith, not only my spiritual life, but even my civil life in this world and all the life I live is by the faith of the Son of God. He exempts no life from the agency of his faith. The Puritans were not, however, abstract theorists who sat idly in their tower spinning abstract philosophies. Puritanism was a reform movement. Its identity was determined by its attempts to change something that already existed. At the heart of Puritanism was the conviction that things needed to be changed and that business as usual was not an option. Of all the key terms used by Puritans, the foremost were reform, reformation, or the adjective reformed. 
These terms were not the coinage of later historians, but were the words on everyone's lips during the Puritan era itself. It was an age in which rulers were urged to reform their countries, churchmen to effect the reformation of religion, and fathers to reform their families. At a more personal level, the Puritan impulse was to reform the life from ungodliness and unrighteous dealings. The Puritan's vision was nothing less than a totally reformed society based on biblical principles. In short, the Puritans were activists to the very core of their being. Significantly, as we shall see in detail in chapter 13, the Puritans were confident that their efforts would succeed. Thus, we find in the Puritans many of the distinctive qualities of the Reconstruction movement, commitment to the authority of Scripture in every area of life, an emphasis on the importance and significance of work and service, an activist, reformist spirit, and optimism about the future. These emphases were not lost with the Puritans. They reappeared in a somewhat different form and in a very different cultural context in 19th century America. Like the Puritans, American Calvinists of the last century believed that the Bible should be used in every area of life and thought. In political theory, for example, they rejected the theories of popular and state sovereignty and insisted instead that God was sovereign over all nations. Though they supported the separation of church and state, Calvinists and many other evangelicals living in the late 19th century proclaimed that religion should not and could not be divorced from politics. Underlying all governments were central presuppositions that either supported or undermined Christianity. There was no intermediate option. They also insisted that the Bible be central to all education. They argued that Religious substance could not simply be tacked on to a neutral curriculum by Bible reading and prayer. Rather, a biblical world and life view must undergird and inform the study of all subjects in the public schools. Again, like the Puritans, American Calvinists work for comprehensive reform. The Calvinist understanding of the kingship of Christ was especially important. Biblical principles should guide all human activities, denounced efforts to confine the influence of Christianity to the church and family life. Some reformed groups, such as the National Reform Association, sought to implement Christ's rule through legislation. Most, however, believed that evangelism and service were more important for reforming American society according to biblical principles. Many of these teachings, particularly the idea that Christianity applies to every area of life, found a brilliant expositor in the 19th century Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, 1837-1920. Two writers have said that Kuyper's brand of Calvinism was the only modern exception to the tendency of Christians either to abandon social action in favor of piety or to abandon piety in favor of social action. Kuyper himself was an incredibly active and prolific figure. After earning a doctorate in theology from the University of Leiden in 1862, Kuyper held pastorates in Vesd, Utrecht, and Amsterdam. During his Amsterdam pastorate, Kuyper also edited a church newspaper and became increasingly involved in politics. Together with a group of politically active Christians, Kuyper helped to organize and strengthen the Anti-Revolutionary Party, which had been started a few years earlier by Jerome Groen van Primster. Kuyper was elected to the Dutch Parliament in 1873 and eventually rose to the position of Prime Minister, 1901-1905. Meanwhile, he edited a political journal and wrote editorials 
that eventually numbered over 16,000. In the late 1870s, Kuiper devoted his vast energies to the founding of the Free University of Amsterdam, where he also taught several diverse subjects. Kuiper was obviously a man of action, but he also was a significant scholar and theologian. In 1898, Kuiper gave a series of lectures at Princeton Theological Seminary. These lectures on Calvinism developed Kuiper's thesis that Calvinism is more than a system of doctrine. It is a full-orbed world and life view. Calvinism provides distinctive teachings on man's threefold relationship to God, to other men, and to the world. Kuiper showed how the principles of Calvinism worked out in the church, in politics, science, and art, and insisted that only Calvinism could provide an antidote to the life system of modernism. Kuiper's ideas formed much of the basis for Henry Van Til's The Calvinistic Concept of Culture, and was one of the inspirations behind the apologetic works of Cornelius Van Til. And it is from Cornelius Van Til that Reconstructionists derive their basic philosophical position. Of course, Kuiper's original ideas were modified over the decades, but Reconstructionists still look to Kuiper as one of their key intellectual forefathers. The Kuiperian tradition was at once pious and socially influential, but there is one significant difference between Kuiper and Reconstructionist. Kuiper was an amillennialist. He really did not believe that Christian effort at reform would prove successful. In fact, he believed that all ideologies, including atheism, should be considered as viable options for the nation. All views should be allowed to compete without any single view claiming the only right and true view. There can be no earthly victory for the gospel because the game is rigged in favor of the other guy. In time, Christianity was squeezed out by the competing options. When we consider that Amsterdam has become a major European center for drugs and pornography, we can begin to better understand that ideas, especially eschatological ideas, have consequences. This brief historical overview helps to place the Christian Reconstructionist in historical perspective and shows that their ideas have a rich and broad heritage in the Reformed churches. Millennial Views this book focuses on the eschatological issues that Dave Hunt raises in his books. Eschatology is that part of theology that deals with the end times. The question is, the end times of what? Old Testament Israel, the Church Age, the Great Tribulation, the restored Israel of the Millennium? We believe that this is one of the most significant differences between ourselves and Mr. Hunt. In order to help the reader understand the terms that will be used throughout the book, let us briefly describe different general views of the end times. Traditionally, eschatological views have been categorized according to different views of the thousand-year period of Revelation 20. Each of these views has been held by orthodox and conservative theologians. All three have coexisted in the church, often in the same congregation. Though some denominations hold to a particular millennial position, the various denominations are not agreed on eschatology as they are, for example, on the doctrine of the Trinity. Using one text of scripture to categorize one's eschatology is clearly not the best way to describe the differences between various positions. After all, in a sense, the entire New Testament is about eschatology. Also, the terms are of fairly recent origin and were not used by the theologians of earlier centuries. Thus, it is somewhat anachronistic to talk about the millennial position of, say, Luther or Augustine. Finally, there are numerous variations of these views. Not every premillennialist will agree with every other premillennialist. 
In fact, not every dispensational premillennialist agrees with all other premillennial dispensationalists. Therefore, any insistence on making millennial views a test of orthodoxy will only create greater divisions in the church. Still, these categories help to distinguish in a general way the different positions that Christians have taken with respect to the future. Premillennialism The premillennial view, as the name suggests, says that Christ will return physically before the millennium begins. Christ's return will be preceded by the preaching of the gospel to all nations, a great apostasy, wars, famines, earthquakes, the appearance of the Antichrist, and a great tribulation. Thus, Christ returns physically to a world in turmoil and sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. At the end of the millennium, there will be a final cataclysmic battle followed by the final judgment and the resurrection. In broad terms, the premillennialist does not believe that Christianity will triumph over all other systems on earth without Christ's sudden intervention. One particular brand of premillennialism has been called dispensational premillennialism. As a general system, dispensationalism is distinguished by several emphases. First, dispensationalists rely on what they consider to be a literal interpretation of the text of Scripture. Second, the dispensationalist distinguishes sharply between Israel and the church. They are two separate peoples of God. God has different purposes for these two peoples. The church is God's heavenly people, while Israel remains, even after Christ's first advent, God's earthly people. In addition to these more general differences, the dispensational premillennialist differs from the historic premillennialist on several details of the end times. Dispensationalists, for example, relying on a literal interpretation of Ezekiel 40 through 48, conclude that in the millennium, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt and the entire sacrificial system reinstituted. Furthermore, the dispensationalist interpreter has a clear idea of God's purposes for ethnic Israel during the millennium. On the other hand, there are some overriding similarities between the two forms of premillennialism. Like historic premillennialism, dispensationalism teaches that Christ will return physically to establish his millennial kingdom on earth. Both, furthermore, believe that the church will be victorious only by a direct divine intervention and thus are pessimistic about the church's future during the present age. Amillennialism. The amillennial view teaches that the millennium is not a literal thousand years. The name literally means not millennial. Many amillennialists prefer the term realized millennium, which calls attention to their belief that the millennium is not exclusively future, but present after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. For the amillennialist, the thousand years of Revelation 20 is a reference to the entire period of the church's historical mission. Christ returns at the end of this indefinite period of time. During this time, the church grows slowly, and so does the kingdom of Satan. The signs of the final coming of Christ, though present throughout this period, will intensify as the time of Christ's coming approaches. The church will survive and may be influential until Jesus returns, but it will not rise to preeminence among the kingdoms of the world. Despite their differences, there is a significant similarity between amillennialism and the different forms of premillennialism. Both deny that the church will be victorious in history and on earth prior to the millennium. Both deny that the nations will be converted to Christ before the second coming. They tend to define victory solely in terms of souls saved or personal victory over sin. 
they claim that their positions are victorious in the sense that ultimately Christ will triumph during the millennium and the final judgment. Culturally and historically, however, both tend to be pessimistic about the church's earthly future. We would like again to remind the reader that a study of history will show that the church was not preoccupied with the end of all things. The great advances in civilization came because Christians believed that God gave them time as a gift to bring glory to God in their work. The more orthodox believers, whether premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, faithfully carried out God's directives to subdue the earth by gospel proclamation and adherence to the ethical law of God. Postmillennialism. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ will return after the millennium. The millennium itself is variously interpreted. Some postmillennialists equate the millennium with the present age, as Christ rules from his heavenly throne and graciously saves men and nations through his church. This is similar to the amillennial view. In fact, it may also be labeled optimistic amillennialism. This position differs from that of many amillennialists, however, in the fact that the postmillennialist believes that Christ will triumph over his enemies during the present age through his redeemed people. True, the forces of Satan become more satanic, but Satan does not dominate the world. Before Christ returns, the nations will have been converted to him. Other postmillennialists interpret the millennium as a future stage of history. Though the kingdom is already inaugurated, there will someday be a greater outpouring of the Spirit than the church has yet experienced. In either view, the postmillennialist views the future with confidence that Christ's kingdom will triumph on earth and in history. There is another, more subtle distinction among postmillennialists. Some emphasize that the victory of Christ will be manifested in the conversion of more and more people to Christ. Thus, the victory of the church will be seen in the salvation of many individuals. Others, while not denying or de-emphasizing the central importance of conversion, teach in addition that there will be a transformation of society and culture resulting from the conversion of vast multitudes of people and nations. Reconstructionists, without denying the other postmillennial distinctives, generally fall in this latter group. As we shall see in later chapters, this is not distinctive to Reconstructionists. What is distinctive about Reconstructionists, however, is their consistent emphasis on the necessity of preaching the gospel and adherence to the Bible as the standard and means of advancing the kingdom on earth. Conclusion When fundamentalism first came on the scene, there was great misunderstanding and mis representation of its beliefs. In fact, if you pick up the literature that was written about fundamentalism and substitute Christian Reconstruction where you find fundamentalism, you will notice that similar misconceptions exist. The influential scholar and writer J.I. Packer describes the difficult time fundamentalists had in having their position properly understood. He writes, Fundamentalism has recently grown notorious. Three factors seem to have caused this. Billy Graham's evangelistic crusades, the growth of evangelical groups in schools and universities, and the increase of evangelical candidates for the ministry. A long correspondence in The Times in August 1955, coupled with strong words from bishops, headmasters, and other responsible persons, made fundamentalism a matter of general interest. Since then, anti-fundamentalism has become a widespread fashion. The debate continues and shows no signs of abating yet. It must encourage evangelical Christians to find so much notice taken of their position. The fact that those who differ from them can no longer ignore them marks a real increase of their position. 
What was true of fundamentalism is now true of Reconstructionism. The number of books, journals, articles, and newsletters that come from Reconstructionist writers is staggering, and there seems to be a disproportionate amount of Reconstructionist influence compared to their small number. But alas, the misrepresentations and caricatures continue to flow from the pens of those who do not show a real understanding of what Reconstructionists believe.